0: Welcome to the April Dermologic Surgery Podcast and Beyond the Digest Supplemental Podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's Dermologic Surgery Podcast, we have a multi center retrospective study of 52 patients who had phenol croton oil chemical peeling which produced durable improvement of constitutional periorbital hyperpigmentation. In addition, there is a prospective randomized single-center double-blinded split-body clinical trial for polylactic acid in the treatment of cellulite of the buttocks and thighs, which employed a validated cellulite scale showing significant improvement in the appearance of cellulite. In Beyond the Digest, we have a two part JAD CME which reviews the risk of melanomas and non melanoma skin cancer in solid organ transplant recipients on immunosuppressants. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day.
1: This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews.
2: This is Ashley Decker reviewing the original investigation, improved margin control of microcystic adnexal carcinoma following Mohs mycographic surgery compared to wide local excision by Sharmitha Yernini and Emily Ruiz. In this original investigation, the authors compared the surgical outcomes for Mohs versus wide local excision in the treatment of microcystic adnexal carcinoma or MAC. MAC is a rare cutaneous neoplasm often found in the head and neck regions with a deeply infiltrative growth pattern potentially leading to significant morbidity. Surgery has always been the gold standard for treatment of MAC. However, there has never been a head-to-head comparison between Mohs and wide local excision. 69 patients with biopsy-proven MACs who had undergone either a wide local excision or Mohs at a single institution between 1994 and 2021 were included. Demographic and outcome information was recorded. 34 patients were treated with Mohs and 35 with wide local excision. There was no difference in age, immune status, or history of skin cancer. 21 patients, or 60% of primary MACs treated with wide local excision, had positive margins after the initial surgery necessitating further resection, whereas all tumors treated with Mohs achieved negative surgical margins on the first attempt. The average number of Mohs stages was 1.8. Local recurrences, nodal disease, and distant metastasis was rare in the entire cohort, but local recurrence was more common in the wide local excision group. Out of the 21 tumors with positive margins after initial excision, four tumors never achieved negative histologic margins. This is the largest study to directly compare the surgical outcomes of primary MAC tumors treated with Mose versus wide local excision. Over half of the wide local excision cohort had positive histological margins after the initial resection, whereas all of the tumors treated with Mose had negative margins on the first surgical attempt. MACs have a deeply infiltrative growth pattern, pattern and the benefit of MoS is it allows for complete deep and peripheral margin assessment in real time. As the authors point out, peripheral and deep FOS margin assessment is recommended by the NCCN for other cutaneous tumors with infiltrative growth patterns similar to MACs. This article really highlights the importance of utilizing MoS when treating these rare and aggressive tumors and I commend the authors for getting more data out there in our literature to support the use of Mose.
3: This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Analysis of Survival Differences Between Cutaneous and Subcutaneous Malignant Peripheral Nerve Sheath Tumors by Courtney Cromer and Thomas Knaxted. The paper starts with the background that malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors are spindle cell sarcomas arising from peripheral nerve sheath cells and are most associated with neurofibromatosis type 1. These tumors are aggressive with poor 5-year survival between 15 to 66%. A small subset of malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors present cutaneously, and the purpose of this paper was to investigate whether this group has improved survival, like superficial variants of other sarcomas, such as leiomyosarcoma. This was a population retrospective cohort study using SEER data from 1975 to 2016. Cutaneous malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors were defined as those involving the epidermis to dermis, while subcutaneous tumors involved fatty tissue or connective tissue. 918 patients were included in the study, comprising of 22 cutaneous tumors, 114 subcutaneous tumors on the head and neck, and 782 subcutaneous tumors on the trunk or extremities. Overall survival was calculated for each group using Cox proportional hazard models. The analysis showed no significant difference in overall or disease-specific survival between cutaneous malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors and subcutaneous tumors of either location. Significant predictors of worse overall survival did include older age at diagnosis, more advanced distant disease at diagnosis, poor grade as compared to well, and no known surgical intervention. The analysis was limited by the available data in the SEER registry, which does not provide information on margin status after excision or detailed information on surgical treatment type or other treatments. Additionally, only a small minority of tumors in the analysis were of the cutaneous subtype. Overall, the findings of this paper suggest that unlike for some other soft tissue sarcomas, cutaneous malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors do not have improved survival and should be treated as very aggressive tumors. Surgical treatment seems to improve survival, but more prospective studies are needed to better delineate best treatment practices.
4: This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Local Recurrence Rates After Excision of Desmoplastic Melanoma, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. First author Amy Krauss, senior author Emily Chu. Several retrospective studies have reported high local recurrence after treatment of desmoplastic melanoma authors performed a systematic review to determine local recurrence rate after excision of desmoplastic melanoma and evaluate factors affecting local recurrence. They searched numerous databases to identify studies reporting local recurrence after treatment with wide local excision, Mohs, or staged excision, and included studies if they reported recurrence rate after excision of at least three desmoplastic melanomas. Four studies evaluated Mohs or staged excision, a total of 61 cases, and 53 studies assess wide local excision, including over 3,000 cases of desmoplastic melanoma. The overall local recurrence rate after wide local excision was 21%. The three studies evaluating Mohs had a combined 12 patients and one reported local recurrence, and in the one study assessing staged excision, local recurrence developed in 22% of cases. Local recurrence rate was higher with positive or unknown histologic excision margins, or 49% of local recurrences, versus negative histologic margins, which were 11% of recurrences. Neurotropism was associated with increased local recurrence, and neurotropic cases were 1.8 times more likely to recur compared with non-neurotropic desmoplastic melanomas. Some studies evaluated treatment of desmoplastic melanoma with and without adjuvant radiation. A secondary analysis of these studies showed that adjuvant radiation was associated with a decreased risk of local recurrence, or a relative risk of 0.5. That being said, the subgroup was small. New treatment guidelines recommend considering adjuvant radiation for desmoplastic melanoma with high-risk features, such as location on head and neck, extensive neurotropism, pure desmoplastic subtype, close margins where resection is not feasible, or locally recurrent disease. A clinical trial of adjuvant radiation for completely resected neurotropic melanomas is currently ongoing. The data indicate a trend toward lower local recurrence in larger and more recent cohorts. These data are consistent with prior studies showing improved melanoma outcomes in high volume centers. Lower local recurrence in more recent studies may be related in part to more routine or improved use of immunohistochemistry. Comparison of these studies included proved difficult as definitions for local recurrence were often not included. Authors proposed a use of a standardized definition as per the ACMS Registry and Outcomes Committee such that local recurrence consists of a tumor with comparable histology, with contiguity to the surgical scar, and that arises within the area of previous treatment. Overall, desmoplastic melanoma has a high local recurrence rate after wide local excision. Local recurrence was greatest with positive excision margins, as one might expect. The dearth of data on Mohs and stage excision makes conclusions and comparisons difficult until furt- further data is collected.
5: This is Christy Vergula, reviewing early fractional ablative laser for skin cancer excision scars. A randomized split scar study by first author Matthew Lin and senior author Human Khorasani. Fractionated ablative lasers have been shown to improve the appearance of surgical scars, but the optimal timing of the treatment is unknown. This study compared surgical scars treated with fractionated CO2 laser performed on day zero and day 14. The design was a prospective randomized split scar physician blinded study of 30 surgical scars on the limbs. On day zero, half of the scar was treated with two passes of the fractionated CO2 laser. And this was performed after intradermal sutures were placed but prior to the epidermal sutures. On day 14, the cutaneous sutures were removed and the other half of the scar was treated with two passes of the fractionated CO2 laser. Subjects were reviewed six months after surgery. And at that time, the subjects were asked which scar half appeared cosmetically superior or if both scar halves looked equivalent. A blinded physician also assessed each half of the scar according to the validated modified Manchester Scar Scale. A three millimeter punch biopsy of of each half of the scar was also performed for confocal imaging and analysis. Of the 30 subjects, 26 completed follow-up and 20 underwent biopsies of the scar. There was no significant difference in patient assessment 54% 54% preferred day zero treatment, and 46% preferred day 14 treatment. Confocal analysis of lacunarity and fractal dimensions were similar for both interventions. Ultimately, this study shows that interoperative CO2, which may be more convenient and efficient, is non-inferior to day 14 laser resurfacing.
6: This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation, the use of a dehydrated complete human placental membrane allograft for Mohs surgical defects of the nose by first author Kelly Wilmas and senior author Michael Migden. Repair options for surgical defects after Mohs micrographic surgery include primary closure, use of a flap or graft, or healing by second intention. When a patient declines repair with a flap or autologous graft, there is a paucity of alternative repair options other than healing by second intention. Human placental membrane allografts are skin substitutes containing non-viable cells that may be placed in acute or chronic wound beds to accelerate wound healing and decrease wound care needs. The authors performed a retrospective study of 20 patients to assess the aesthetic and functional outcomes of an alternative repair technique using a novel human placental membrane allograft for surgical defects of the nose after nose surgery. Specifics regarding the graft application protocol are available in the surgical technique section of the article. Photographs of the surgical site taken, were taken immediately postoperatively and at clinical follow-up. The patient and observer scar assessment scale, or POSAS, was then used to evaluate outcomes. The patient portion evaluates six components of the scar and the observer component five. Each patient completed the patient component of the post-ass survey at their follow-up appointments. Two independent board-certified dermatologists who did not participate in the surgeries or repairs completed the observer component of the survey after assessing photographs of each patient's surgical site immediately postoperatively and at the follow-up appointment. A total of 12 men and 8 women comprised the study population. Mean time to follow-up and completion of the post-ass survey was 11.4 weeks. The mean postoperative defect size was 1.4 centimeters squared. 14 of 20 patients had one allograft placed, whereas four patients had two, and two patients had three grafts. Observers rated the scar outcome a combined mean score of 8.4 on a scale of 5 to 50, with 50 being the worst possible scar. Patients rated their outcomes a mean of 12.6 on a scale of 6 to 60, with 60 being the worst possible scar. The mean overall opinion score was 2.5 by patients and 1.9 by observers, which was on the scale of one to 10. I personally use allographs for large defects, particularly on the scalp with exposed bone that are somewhat slow to granulate. However, I've never personally applied them to defects on the face. While the results of this study are interesting, there are significant limitations, including the lack of a control group and the very small sample size. Additionally, I would have liked to see a breakdown for the various defect subunit locations as it's well established that defects of around a centimeter on certain subunits of the nose heal very well by second intention. Furthermore, a mean fall time of around 11.4 weeks would indicate that the graphs do not decrease time to re-epithelialization. Certainly, controlled studies comparing to second intention healing are indicated to truly assess the efficacy of these grafts, especially given their high cost
3: this is erica levitt reviewing the original article awareness and counseling among dermatologists of the association between hydrochlorothiazide and non-melanoma skin cancer barriers and opportunities by authors jason bard and robert smith the authors provide the background that hydrochlorothiazide has been linked to skin cancer development The proposed mechanism is that UV exposure leads to the disassociation of chlorine substituents in the medication, leading to reactive oxygen species formation and free radical damage to keratinocytes. Hydrochlorothiazide use has been associated with a dose-dependent risk of developing non-melanoma skin cancer. The authors mentioned several studies, including a population-based Icelandic study that found that hydrochlorothiazide doses of 37,500 milligrams or more increased the risk of invasive SCC, and another study that found a seven times increased risk of SCC of the lip with a cumulative dose of 100,000 milligrams or higher. In 2020, the FDA changed the hydrochlorothiazide drug label to mention this increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer, and the label now counsels patients to follow sun protective measures and get skin exams if on the medication. The purpose of this current survey study was to assess what proportion of dermatologists are aware of this association and FDA label change and subsequently screen and counsel their patients. The survey was sent to the Association of Professors of Dermatology listserv and program directors were asked to forward the survey to residents and faculty members. 83 dermatology residents and attendings responded. 71% of respondents were aware of the link between hydrochlorothiazide and non-melanoma skin cancer, but only 29% were aware of the FDA label change. A significantly greater proportion of attendings when compared to residents were aware of the association and label change. 85% of attendings were aware of the association versus 54% of residents. Respondents were also asked how often they check if a patient is taking hydrochlorothiazide during a skin exam, and 61% of respondents selected never or rarely. The major limitation of this study was the low response rate. Additionally, only dermatologists in an academic setting were surveyed, although this may have inflated the rate of awareness. Overall, the study does highlight that there is room for increased awareness among dermatologists and especially residents of the association between hydrochlorothiazide and skin cancer, and particularly the 2020 FDA label change reflecting this risk. I agree with the authors that clear multidisciplinary guidelines on best screening practices and medication algorithms would be very helpful to best treat our patients.
5: This is Christy Regula reviewing patient anxiety related to patient-perceived delays in surgical treatment of skin cancer by first author Caroline Daly and senior author Kristen Beebe. Patients undergoing dermatologic surgery report higher anxiety levels than those undergoing non-surgical treatments. Many factors are likely to contribute to this anxiety, but little is known about the association between patient-perceived delays in skin cancer surgery and patient-reported anxiety. This study looked to examine the association between the two. For a three-month time period, all consecutive patients undergoing wide local excisions or most surgery for skin cancer treatment at a single institution were contacted immediately after their surgery to participate in the study. A survey was then sent to them to assess patient perception of surgical delay, history of previous skin cancer surgeries, educational background, income, and self-reported history of anxiety and depression. The survey also included the psychosocial screen for cancer, which is a validated tool to assess social support and anxiety and depression related to skin cancer surgery between biopsy and surgery. 124 patients completed the survey with the mean age of 66.8 years old and 58% of the patients were male. 27% of patients perceived a delay in their surgery, and patients who perceived a delay in surgery did have a significantly longer time between biopsy and treatment compared with patients who did not perceive a delay. Perception of surgical delay was independently associated with an increased psychosocial screen for cancer score after adjusting for variables. The article does not quantify how long a perceived delay actually was However, it hasn't identified an important discussion point with our patients that may help to reduce patient anxiety.
2: This is Ashley Decker reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of a large central facial defect involving the nasal dorsum, nasal sidewall, medial canthus and glabella by doctors Passy and Merritt. A 97 year old woman underwent Mohs surgery for a 2.8 centimeter basal cell on the nasal root. Clear margins were obtained in five levels and the final defect measured 4.5 centimeters involving the left nasal sidewall, nasal dorsum, glabella and left medial canthus with extension into the cranial periosteum and nasal cartilage. This large central face defect is very complicated for several reasons, including cosmetic implications, involvement of numerous cosmetic subunits, and concern for functionality of the underlying musculature. Due to the size of the defect, the list of potential closure options was limited and included a full thickness skin graft with an additional hinge flap to cover the wound bed, double transposition, or rotation flaps, or a peri-median forehead flap. To simplify things, the authors divided the defect into distinct subunits including the nasal dorsum slash sidewall and then the medial canthus glo- and glabellar area and designed a multi-component single stage repair. For the lower segment on the nasal sidewall, a peri-alar advancement flap was used. To repair the medial canthus glabella nasal root portion of the defect, a flipped island pedicle flap based on the trochlear artery was designed. The supratrochlear artery was identified via Doppler and a template made of the residual defect. Parallel incisions were made to the periosteum of the forehead and extended inferior to the brow where a 1.2 centimeter pedicle was preserved, very similar to a standard paramedian forehead flap. The flap was elevated in the subcutaneous plane until mid-forehead and then submuscular from there on to protect the supratrochlear artery. The flap was rotated 90 degrees and sutured into place using suspension from the medial canthal tendon, followed by a layered closure. I recommend the listeners to look at the photographs in this article. Visualization of this unique repair is helpful. The patient overall had a great cosmetic outcome. The article is a good reminder that when you have a large defect involving multiple subunits, on initial glance, it can feel very overwhelming, but breaking down the defect into subunits is helpful to simplify things in your mind and come up with the best repair possible. This is Deirdre
4: Connolly reviewing the Reconstructive Conundrum, a unique approach to reconstruction of a medial canthus defect. First author, Priscilla Kojer, senior author, Tyler Holmig. A 41-year-old man presented with... An infundibular cystic basal cell carcinoma of the left superior nasal sidewall. After four stages of Mohs, yielding a 3.3 by three centimeter defect extending to the muscle and involving the left superior nasal sidewall, lower eyelid, and medial cheek, the authors designed a flap that combined a cheek advancement flap with a V to Y transposition flap. The flap movement is best understood by viewing the included diagram. The closure was designed such that the burrows triangle of the cheek advancement flap served as the V-shaped island for the transposition flap. The inferior medial limb of the V was extended vertically along the nasolabial fold for optimal scar placement. The flap was incised to the subcutaneous muscular junction, allowing for elevation and mobility on a superiorly based muscular subcutaneous pedicle. The V-shaped island pedicle was transposed 180 degrees into the portion of the primary defect involving the nasal sidewall and medial canthus. Before the inset of the pedicle, the primary and secondary defects were widely undermined and the cheek was advanced medially and sutured inferior to superior to close the secondary defect, the eyelid and the cheek portions of the primary defect. This part was performed first to provide support for the weight of the flap, thus reducing the risk for tension on the lower eyelid. The pedicle flap was aggressively thinned and trimmed to the size of the remaining primary defect and sutured in place. The closure was completed with tacking sutures just inferior to the medial canthus, which supported the flap's weight and helped preserve the native concavity of this subunit junction involving the cheek and nose.
6: This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, a challenging defect of the upper nasal bridge and upper nasal sidewall by first author Alistair Brown and senior author Neil Mortimer. The authors described the repair of a 3 by 24 centimeter defect involving most of the upper nasal dorsum and a portion of the right upper nasal sidewall with the extension toward the right medial canthus following Mohs surgery for a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. Repair of larger defects in this location can be challenging, and meticulous attention must be given to restoration of the normal thin skin contour, with care to preserve the concavities of the medial canthal regions while avoiding webbing. The authors performed a melolabial transposition flap to repair this defect with delayed excision of the standing cutaneous cone at the base of the flap, which preserved its viability, not compromising the pedicle. Although laxity of the medial cheek is not traditionally used to reconstruct defects of the upper nasal bridge. The tissue lateral to the proximal aspect of the melolabial fold provided a good color match for the normal skin of the dorsum and the ability to substantially thin the flap allowed restoration of the normal contour of the nasal bridge and sidewall. Incision lines with this approach could all be hidden within cosmetic subunit boundaries. Postoperative result is available in figure three of the article.
5: This is Christy Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum Reconstruction of a Large Periocular Defect by first author Shoshana Blumenthal and senior author Ian Mayer. The reconstructive conundrum presents the case of a 61-year-old man with a basal cell carcinoma of the left medial canthus. After most surgery, the defect measured 5 by 4.8 centimeters extended to the periosteum, the medial canthal tendon was resected, and the upper and lower eyelids were missing more than 75% of both anterior and posterior lamellae. This defect was significant, and I would refer you to the article for photographs, as well as a discussion of eyelid anatomy. This repair combined a tensile flap and canthotomy for the lower lid, a periosteal flap to recreate the posterior lamella, an advancement flap uh, for the upper cutaneous eyelid, a V vita Y flap for the lower eyelid and cheek defects, and a contralateral paramedian forehead flap for the nasal sidewall and medial canthus. At one year year follow-up, the patient had healed very well. I would encourage you to reference the article for a more detailed description of the repair.
3: This is Erica Levitt reviewing the reconstructive conundrum repair of a nasal ala defect involving the alar rim and nostril floor by authors Se Kwang Kao and Sang Hao. The defect was a 1.9 by 2.3 centimeter defect involving the nasal alar base, alar rim, and nostril floor. The alar rim defect was full thickness involving skin, fiber fatty tissue, and internal nasal lining. The authors chose to repair the defect using a modified nasolabial V to Y flap with extension limbs along the alar crease and upper cutaneous lip. The upper extension limb is most similar to that of the described shark island pedicle flap. The extension limb at the alar crease was elevated thinly at the subdermal plane, and this thin flap was rotated 90 degrees and folded to cover the full thickness defect on the alar rim. In contrast, the limb on the upper cutaneous lip was elevated at a thicker plane involving part of the muscle, and this non-hair-bearing limb covered the nostril floor. Please refer to the paper for a more detailed description of the flap execution. This reconstruction was a very great reminder of how traditional flaps, in this case, the to Y flap, can be modified to adapt to very tricky defects.
6: This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum repair of an extensive defect of the ear and retroricular scalp by first author Catherine Shawan and senior author Ian Marr. The authors described the repair of an 8 by 5 centimeter defect involving the retroauricular scalp down to periosteum, the posterior surface of the ear extending down to the cartilage of the helical rim, and a full thickness defect through the contral bowl and central antihelix, as well as a second 2.5 by 1.5 centimeter defect on the right lateral neck following Mohs surgery for two squamous cell carcinomas. A superiorly based rhombic transposition flap was incised and transposed into the contral bowl defect underneath the residual helical rim. The rhombic flap was designed to incorporate the defect on the right lateral neck as well, with the distal standing cone removed inframedially to the smaller defect. The residual helical rim was then sutured to the retroricular scalp, leaving a 3.5 by 3 centimeter defect with a well vascularized base of auricularis fascia. This was repaired with a Burroughs full thickness skin graft taken from the distal standing cone of the flap. The patient returned approximately six weeks later for flap takedown and repair of the donor site. The flap was severed at the base and was reapproximated to cover the remaining anterior ear defect. A burrows advancement flap was then performed to repair the residual donor defect site on the posterior auricle and maintain auricular projection by resurfacing the posterior auricular scalp and auricle. Outcome at four weeks can be seen in figure four of the article.
4: This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, Recurrent Dermatofibrosarcoma Protuberans Infiltrating the Skull. First author, John Wunnenberg, senior author, David Ozog. A 49-year-old man with a medical history of migraines presented for MOse after a local recurrence of a right occipital scalp, DFSP, treated at an outside institution with wide local excision. Previous MRI and CT scans did not show bone involvement. Four stages of MOse was performed to clear the cutaneous and soft tissue component of the tumor, resulting in a 7.5 by 7 centimeter defect. There was a noticeable one by one centimeter erosion of bone present, which was tender to palpation. Consultation with neurosurgery and plastic surgery was arranged. Before bone resection, plastic surgery placed a continuous external tissue expander under local anesthesia, which was in place for six days with tightening after four days, leading to a 30% reduction in the defect size ahead of its removal before the cranial bone resection. Neurosurgery drilled out a 2.5-centimeter margin from the erosion of bone and extended it deeply to include removal of the outer and middle table of cranial bone, which was sent for pathologic analysis and was negative for malignancy. Plastic surgery completed the closure with an adjacent tissue transfer and was sutured closed. At one year post-operation, the patient continued to do well with no clinical or radiologic recurrence, and he noted a resolution of migraines early in his post-op course. One of the most stages showed tumor cells surrounding a deep neural structure. It was unclear whether this represented perineural invasion or nerve entrapment, though this nerve involvement in either case may have accounted for the patient's migraines. Prior literature reviews show that intracranial invasion almost uniformly resulted in death or recurrence, while periosteal and skull invasion with resection showed no recurrence in seven of eight cases. This observation implies that the tumor be removed critically before it is allowed to infiltrate into the brain.
2: This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication, obtaining access to tumors of the conchal bowl and external auditory canal via post-auricular sulcus incision by Drs. Baja and Geronimus. Cutaneous tumors of the ear, particularly those of the conchal bowl and external auditory canal post a unique challenge because of difficulty obtaining visualization and limited surgical maneuverability within this narrow anatomic site. The authors introduce a novel technique for improved Mohs access to external auditory canal tumors via primary incision into the postericular sulcus. The authors present a case of a 79-year-old male with a basal cell of the conchal bowl extending into the external auditory canal. Preoperative imaging suggests tumor involvement of the osseous and cartilaginous component of the external auditory canal, but without involvement of the left tympanic cavity or mastoid air cells. The patient was scheduled as a joint case between Mose and ENT. To gain and visualize um, the external auditory canal during MOse an incision was made in the posterior sulcus. This allowed for anterior transposition of the auricle pedicle to the attachment to the facial skin and with arterial contributions from branches of the superior temporal artery. Between MOSE levels, running sutures were placed along the incision line for hemostasis. A benefit of this approach is the incision line is hidden behind the ear, allowing for near-complete maintenance of the anterior architecture, contour, and cosmesis of the ear. This approach is also utilized by ENT to obtain access to the mastoid and external auditory canal and lateral temporal bone resection. The authors do point out that the possibility of cutting through deep tumor during the postericular incision and tumor clearance may require posterior and anterior base resection of the reflected auricle, requiring meticulous attention to mapping and orientation.
5: This is Christy Vergula reviewing utilization of frost suture in obtaining Mohs micrographic surgery layers in the periorbital region by first author Kristen Simon and senior author Amrit Green. The lower eyelid can be a difficult location for tumor extirpation due to the laxity of the skin and adjacent concavity of the eyelid cheek junction. This makes it difficult to provide adequate countertension. This article details the use of a frost suture to provide adequate traction on the lower eyelid. For the suture, a 4O or 5O nylon, polypropylene, or silk on a P3 needle was used. The smaller needle helps to prevent tearing of the tarsus. A three-millimeter bite is taken at the lower lid margin, and countertraction is then created by applying an upward force on the suture loop to elevate the lower lid margin and distend the skin. This allows for easier extirpation of the tumor.
1: This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews.
7: This is Megan McLean reviewing the original investigation, Surgical Subcision for Acne Scars, a review of instrumentation by Yolanka Lobo and David Lim. Subcision is a minimally invasive technique to elevate skin depressions first described in 1995. It treats rolling acne scars by severing the fibrous band that tethers the scar to the subcutaneous tissue. Improvement after subcision is reported to range from 10 to 100%. The authors performed a lit review of articles describing subcision alone for acne scarring. They identified 17 articles with 417 patients using either sharp, blunt, or energy-assisted subcision and found all were effective in treating acne scars. More details can be found in the supplemental digital content. The authors then provide a review of available subcision tools as well as their advantages, disadvantages, and a rating of up to five stars based on the author's personal experience. Sharp instruments include hypodermic needles, no core needles, cataract blades, dovetail cannulas, and the Taylor liberator. In general, sharp instruments require less force to transect fibrotic tissue, but are associated with more complications including pain, bruising, nodules, bleeding, and hematoma. Other factors to consider are the length of the instrument as shorter devices require multiple entry points and may increase the likelihood of iatrogenic scars. The rigidity of the instrument also dictates whether it can withstand the force needed to shear scar bands, while flexibility can allow for more tactile feedback and account for the natural curvature of the face. Blunt instruments include traditional cannulas, U-tip cannulas, and blunt blades, which can be either smooth or notched. In general, blunt cannulas may offer good results with less risk of bleeding hematoma or other neurovascular injury. They can be used to simultaneously deliver anesthesia, fillers, nanofat, or other blood-derived products. However, due to the blunt tip, significant force may be necessary in areas of severe fibrosis. Energy assisted devices employ radio frequency or diode laser to assist with separating the fibrous bands. This may lead to more controlled cutting with less collateral damage and may provide coagulation and thus less bleeding complications. Edema may be seen more commonly and burn scars at entry points have been reported. The three devices receiving either five- or four-star ratings include the stripping dovetail cannulas, the Taylor Liberator, and blunt dissection cannulas. In summary, this article provides an excellent overview of available subcision instruments and can be a resource for dermatologic surgeons hoping to add this technique to their practice.
8: Hello, I'm Karen Lal, and I will be reviewing highly purified micro droplet liquid injectable silicone for the treatment of acne scars in lighter and darker skin types, a retrospective review by Dr. Salame and Dr. Brody. Acne scarring can be difficult to manage in darker skin types, especially when they are atrophic boxcar and or pitted. A previous study with 30-year follow-up of liquid injectable silicone for treatment of acne scarring showed preservation and precision and permanence of product without complications. Liquid injectable silicone is comprised of dimethyl polysiloxane, a colorless, odorless, non volatile oil that has a consistency of honey. It has direct volumizing and a biostimulatory effect. A retrospective chart review of patients who received highly purified liquefied injectable silicone for acne scars between 2010 and March of twenty twenty one was performed. 200 and six total treatments in 96 patients was performed, of which many were types 4 and types 5 skin with depressed and both broad-based and shallow acne scars. Total volume of product used never exceeded 0.5 ml per split face per session or 1 ml total per session. Patients returned for repeat treatments as needed until the desired level of correction was reached, usually one to three treatments depending on degree and depth of scars with a minimum treatment interval of six to eight weeks. Average follow-up time in this study was 6.31 years. No patients experienced any major adverse events, including no extrusion, granuloma formation, migration, hyperpigmentation, or hematomas. Highly purified liquid injectable silicone is a safe and effective permanent treatment for acne scars in all skin types. Overcorrection can occur if treatment is not performed judiciously in the right plane with large quantities. This is a permanent treatment, but treatment over years may need to be accounted for due to gravitational changes that occur with aging. This study had a good mean follow-up period with no evidence of granulomatous nodules, which reinforces the importance of aseptic technique, micro technique, and adequate patient selection.
9: This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing phenol croton oil chemical peeling induces durable improvement of constitutional periorbital dark circles with first author Seaver Soon, lead author Marina Landau, and a star-studded group of international peeling society experts. This was a retrospective review of using phenol croton oil to treat one type of dark circles, specifically constitutional periorbital dark circles, which is the second most common type of PDC in east asians and it's a circular brown to black pigmentation symmetrically involving the lower and often upper eyelid and it exhibits a velvety texture and a familial predisposition importantly it is characterized by dermal melanophages which accounts for the difficulty in treating this condition with epidermal targeted therapy i would refer you to this paper for a beautiful table that classifies periorbital dark circles fantastic photography that will help you if you're going to implement this procedure into your clinical practice. In their results, there were 55 phenol croton oil peels performed in 52 patients, 92% women, median age 46. 89% of these patients were Fitzpatrick skin types three or four, and 89% of these patients experienced 51% or greater improvement with a median duration of improvement of 24 months. In the discussion, the authors importantly report that there were no cases of relapse of constitutional periorbital dark circles in the 10 years of follow-up. And they postulate that that is due to the deep chemical peeling inducing upper to mid-reticular dermal injury with deposition of a band of neocollagen. And they point out that this has been also looked at in deep laser resurfacing as a mechanism that what's happening is that you're thickening the dermal tissue and improving surface light reflection. And that's really why you get such long-term efficacy. They highlight safety and complications and they point out that PIH and PIE should be expected and are not complications. So they had 45% of their patients have PIH, which is a big percentage, and it self-resolves in up to six months or can go away in three months with bleaching the PIE can be problematic to patients, so you must make sure that you consent people appropriately. They talk about scarring of the medial canthus is very important, so you shouldn't be treating the medial canthus. In their limitation section, they point out that this is retrospective, so it's limited by availability and accuracy of data and selection and confounding bias. But overall, in conclusion, the author suggests that chemical peeling deeply with phenol croton oil is a treatment of choice for constitutional PDC. And if you're interested in implementing this into your practice, I would encourage you to read this paper in its entirety. It is quite well done.
10: This is Isabella Jones reviewing safety and efficacy of thermomechanical fractional injury device for periorbital Ritids by Wong and Levi. This study looks at a device called the Tixol 2 which uses metallic pyramidal tips that work by transferring heat through conduction upon brief tissue contact. A ceramic heater is attached to the base of the tips, which is heated to 400 degrees Celsius. The device is thought to stimulate changes in the dermis from its thermal effects. In this study, 51 subjects, mostly women, with a mean age of 57, with moderate to severe periorbital wrinkling were enrolled. Fitzpatrick skin types one through four were included. Patients received four treatments and were assessed three months after the last session. At the three-month follow-up, investigators scored a greater than two-unit mean improvement in Fitzpatrick wrinkling scores, with all subjects having clinical improvement and more than half having at least 76 to 100% improvement. Three blinded physicians rated that 8.3% of subjects were responders. There were no serious adverse events and subjects experienced menopause pain with a mean level of pain of three out of 10 and downtime consisting of some edema for one to two days and erythema for two to three days. The authors argue their study shows the device is safe and effective for skin types 1 through 4 and has the advantage of causing minimal pain and does not require the need for eye shield placement when treating the periorbital region.
11: This is Ardalan Menokhede discussing the manuscript, a randomized, single-center, double-blinded, split-body clinical trial of poly lactic acid for the treatment of cellulite of the buttocks and thighs, from senior author Sabrina Fabi and first author Rawah Al Mukhtar. Overall, the point of this manuscript is that PLLA or lactic acid does work for treatment of cellulite of the buttocks and thighs, specifically with respect to appearance of uh, depressions in, in terms of reducing their depth improving the morphologic appearance of the skin, improving the grade of skin laxity, and overall improvement of cellulite appearance. However, the novel element of this manuscript is that it's the first clinical trial that studies the efficiency and effectiveness and safety of PLLA or lactic acid in treatment of cellulite using a validated scale. As background, the authors highlight that cellulite is a high concern for women, stating that more than 90% of women report concerns of cellulite on their skin. The intervention, or PLLA, or polylactic acid, is a biocompatible synthetic filler many cosmetic dermatologists are familiar with that that is semi-permanent and induces neocollagenesis. Overall, again, The treatment of the buttocks and thighs were highlighted in this trial. Patients did receive injections with up to two vials of PLLA, or polylactic acid, versus the equivalent volume of bacteriostatic water in the treatment area. They did receive three treatments spaced about four weeks apart and were followed out up to 330 days. The patients did not appear to have any significant procedure-related side effects. And the treatment did have efficacy.
12: This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing collagenase clostridium histolyticum injections for volumetric change of cellulite dimples and gluteal contouring by first author Nina Hartman and last author Sabrina Fabi. Cellulite has an almost 80 to 98% prevalence in post women, that may be due to altercations in the dermal subcutaneous interface, fat globules, and fibroceptae. Collagenase Clostridium histolyticum is composed of two purified collagenases that hydrolyzed type one and three collagen and was FDA approved for this indication in 2020. It is an outpatient injection that is relatively quick into the silate dimples but side effects are prolonged and rather severe bruising throughout the treatment area, possible pain post injection and possible nodules. This study was a retrospective review to assess the volumetric change in individual cellulite dimples on the buttocks and enhancement of overall gluteal contour after collagenase injections using Canfield 3D imaging and a seven point physician global improvement scale at day 90 and 180 after treatment. A total of 58 female subjects, and these were from cohort two of a previous collagenase study, were included in the retrospective image review. Canfield 3D imaging showed a significant improvement in total negative dimple volume of 27% at day 90, and this was maintained at 26% at day 180. So in this retrospective image review, overall gluteal contour was observed to be improved in 20% of patients at day 90 and 26 at day 180. However, about 16% of patients did note a worsening gluteal contour, perhaps due to underlying skin laxity, and 48% did not have any improvement in gluteal contour. This study helps to better understand the effects of cellulite dimples and gluteal contour when treating the fibroseptae. And perhaps when treating the fibroseptae with collagenase or the treatments, this can give an overall improved gluteal contour in some patients. Of note, collagenase clostridium histolyticum is no longer on the market due to the resultant purpura and then post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation post-treatment. This is Monica Bowen and I'll be reviewing the commentary on the article Collagenase Clostridium Histolyticum Injections for Volumetric Change of cellulite Dimples and Glidial Contouring by Sashin Shridharani. The author notes that it is interesting that 12 patients had actually a negative glidial contour post collagenase clostridium histolyticum injections and 48% had no improvement. Thus, it is important to counsel patients that after treatment of the cellulite dimples with collagenase, they may have a decreased overall buttocks volume or no change at all in the gluteal contour. But overall, the author applauds the study as it shows that collagenase clostridium histolyticum yields improvement in dimple severity and gluteal volume changes that is sustained over 180 days. However, I do wanna note that this product is no longer on the market due to the bruising and purpura post-treatment and resulting post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation.
10: This is Isabella Jones reviewing Efficacy and Safety of the microinsulated Needle Radio Device for Reduction of cemental Fat by Kim and Hugh. In the study, 24 adults with excess segmental fat were treated once using a microinsulated needle monopolar radiofrequency device. This device has a tip with three micro needles, each four millimeters in length with an insulated proximal two millimeters to avoid thermal damage to the epidermis. The insertion sites of the needle were approximately three millimeters apart from one another. The thermal effect of RF is thought to cause disintegration and apoptosis of adipocytes in addition to dermal collagen contraction and neocollagenesis. Evaluations were conducted before treatment and one and two months post-treatment. Evaluations consisted of submental fat rating by an independent investigator fat volume quantified with a three-dimensional camera and patient satisfaction. The patient's physician-assisted submental fat rating scale score significantly decreased after one month and further decreased after two months post-treatment. The average volume of submental fat was significantly decreased after two months, noting a mean 19.72% decrease in the quantitative volume change. Patient satisfaction was high. An ulcer occurred in one patient at the beginning of the study, which needed three vascular treatments to improve. Three other patients had erythema, oozing, and superficial bullet. The authors write that they think operator error may have caused these side effects with the oblique insertion of the needles into the skin. The authors argue this was a safe and effective treatment for supplemental fat reduction. The authors do not mention whether the patients were weighed before and after the treatment.
8: Hello, I'm Curran Lal and I'm going to be reviewing limited systemic sclerosis associated calcinosis cutis of the fingers treated successfully with ablative continuous wave carbon dioxide laser and curatage. Dystrophic calcification is the most common type of calcification noted in autoimmune connective tissue diseases. Common therapies include intralesional and topical sodium thiosulfate, minocycline, Kenalog, calcium channel blockers, surgery, and laser surgery. Laser surgery is often deferred in the dermatology setting but may actually allow for better visualization and curatage of the calcium content. In this case, report a patient with dystrophic calcinosis cutis associated with limited systemic sclerosis underwent Four treatments with continuous wave CO2 laser therapy with curatage for five nodules on four fingers without complications. She underwent continuous wave CO2 with the luminous ultrapulse, which was applied at 6 to 10 millijoule settings with 2 millimeter spot size to ablate the skin until the calcifications were visualized at the level of the subcutis. Curatage was performed of the calcium contents... During one-year follow-up, she had only one recurrence but had overall improvement in pain reduction compared to her prior procedures. Fully ablative continuous wave CO2 laser therapy may be an effective method for treating calcinosis cutis. This offers a more cost-effective way and safer way of treating dystrophic calcification in patients not responding to topicals.
11: This is Ardalan Minoketa describing the manuscript Intralesional 5-Fluorouracil a therapy for solitary infantile myofibromatosis. As we know, this condition, infantile myofibromatosis, is rare and it commonly presents in infancy and early childhood. The authors describe the case of a nine-year-old who presented to clinic and ultimately had a biopsy-proven lesion that resolved after two sessions of injection with 5 fluorouracil The authors show photos in this manuscript with the, of the significant improvement after one injection, and do highlight that although usually self-limiting, a treatment option for this condition is important to have. Spontaneous regression can take many years. So the question is what can be done for lesions that persist, become locally aggressive, or provide significant psychosocial impact for patients? The authors do highlight that intralesional 5-FU has never been reported in the literature for treatment of this condition, and it was selected because of the author's experience with with this medication and the fibrous nature of the lesion. So ultimately, the take-home point is we have an alternative to surgical excision and a treatment that will ultimately not leave a scar. Side effects were very minimal. The patient experienced only mild injection-related discomfort.
12: This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing treatment patterns of port wine birthmark with pulse dye laser among dermatology practices in the United States by first author Vijay Kodamundi and last author Hua Feng. The authors wanted to investigate patterns among dermatologists nationwide that use pulse dye laser to treat port wine birthmarks. Earlier treatment of port wine birthmarks, even as early as two weeks, leads to better results. The authors used the Physician Finder from Candela Medical to identify practices that use pulse dye laser, and then these practices were contacted by phone to determine characteristics of how they treat the port wine birthmarks. A total of approximately 2,000 dermatologists were included in this survey and about 1,400 practices. They found that 55% utilized non-physicians to perform the procedure, 52% had a minimum age of treatment, and most practices did not use general anesthesia for treatment, though 16% of practices offer general anesthesia if needed. The authors note that pulse eye laser can be performed safely in infants and toddlers, and this does yield to better results, but half of the practices did have an age requirement of one year or older, which highlights the need for further education on the benefits and safety of earlier treatment for port wine birthmarks, which also could reduce the need for general anesthesia.
10: This is Isabella Jones reviewing Response of Refractory Orofacial Granuloma to CO2 Laser by Gonzalez and Pozo. In this letter, a 40-year-old man presented with a two-year history of progressive lower lip enlargement upon biopsy showing orofacial granulomatosis. The lesion recurred and grew larger after initially responding to intralegional triamcinolum. The authors then treated the patient with CO2 laser, ablating the entire surface of the affected area under local anesthesia. A second treatment was performed two months later. In their 10-month follow-up, no recurrence or adverse events were noted. The authors note this is the first report using CO2 laser for oral facial granulomatosis.
9: This is Deirdre Hooper, reviewing infraorbital nerve injury and anesthesia after facial soft tissue filler injection by Jake Wang and Kathleen Souzy out of Yale. This is a case report of a patient who developed infraorbital nerve anesthesia after injection by a non-physician provider. After being injected with calcium hydroxyapatite and hyaluronic acid over her right zygoma, the patient complained of an immediate soft pain and then developing hypoesthesia. On post-injection day one, she called her provider who injected her, who treated her with antibiotics and prednisone, but not hyaluronidase. After a week of continuing pain, the patient presented to the emergency department and eventually was referred to a board-certified dermatologist who noted complete anesthesia on the right cheek, signs of livido on the right cheek, and a pustule on the nose. At this point, the patient had good capillary refill. On CT and MRI imaging, product was visible in the area of the bilateral infraorbital foramen. The patient was treated with 300 units of hyaluronidase, gabapentin, and low-dose prednisone. At the two-month follow-up, her anesthesia had improved significantly. In the discussions, the authors postulate that the injury... Could have been due to any of three factors and probably a combination of direct injury with the needle to the nerve, compression of product on the nerve, and vascular compromise due to a vascular occlusive event and they underscore the importance of sensory nerve injury being recognized as a possible side effect of filler, and importantly that everyone is who injecting who is injecting should be cognizant of the risks and the treatment of any adverse events that do occur, and I applaud the authors for sharing this paper.
7: This is Megan McLean reviewing the communication, superorbital edema as a predictor of eyelid edema following neurotoxin administration by Patricia Ritchie, Matthew Avram, Danielle Solish, Sebastian Kodafana, and Molly Wanner. Eyelid edema is a rare complication of neuromodulator treatment occurring at a rate less than 0.4%. The authors posit that it may be possible to predict patients who will experience this complication with a simple pretreatment re- maneuver. They detailed two cases of otherwise healthy women who experienced periorbital edema after treatment of the glabella, forehead, and periorbital region. Prior to treatment, both women displayed pitting edema of the lateral superorbital region when pressure was applied with a cotton-tipped applicator. The theorized mechanism of edema is due to impaired lymphatic return, which also can contribute to baseline eyelid edema. The impaired return may be attributed to weakness of the orbicularis oculi muscle, which is crucial in promoting lymphatic outflow Through its muscular contractions, additional weakening of the muscle with neurotoxin may further impair lymphatic outflow and aggravate pre-existing edema. It is notable that this is a different mechanism than that of the more commonly encountered complication of eyelid ptosis, which is attributed to relaxation of the levator palpebri superioris muscle. The authors have been able to prevent the development of this edema in patients who fail their pretreatment test of cotton-tipped applicator by using lower doses in the periorbital region and treating the forehead on a separate visit than the glabella and periorbital region two weeks after treatment. In summary, patients with pre-existing pitting edema of the lateral supraorbital region may be at higher risk for developing periorbital edema after neuromodulator treatment and may warrant adjustment to neuromodulator injection technique.
1: Welcome to Beyond the Digest. Offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer reviewed journal Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered.
13: My name is Amy Green and I will be discussing the original article entitled Sex Differences in Initial Treatment for Genital Extramammary Paget's Disease in the United States, a systematic review by Supriya Rostogi and senior author Dr. Bethane Schlossler out of Northwestern. Extramammary Paget's disease is a rare cutaneous malignancy that presents on the vulva, male genitalia, and less commonly on the axilla and perianal skin. Although surgery is the mainstay of treatment, consensus on optimal surgical modality is lacking. The tumor often extends subclinically, leading to a high rate of recurrence. Most surgery for extramammary patches disease started in the 1970s, which demonstrated lower recurrence, but there still is no standard consensus guidelines on management. This is a systematic review of all initial treatments of genital extramammary paget's disease for non-invasive disease looking for differential management based on sex and geographic location. I will direct you to the methods section for the complete methodology, but following the following databases were searched for re- re- relevant published articles after 1979: Medline via PubMed, Embase, Web of Science, Cochrane Library, and clinicaltrials.gov. Inclusion criteria were English studies conducted within the U.S., published online or in press with individual patient data and covering initial therapy of genital EMPD. Cases were excluded if there were other genital skin diseases, concomitant cancer, or metastatic or invasive EMPD, and articles published prior to 1979 when Mohs was initiated for the disease. When data was duplicated, only the most recent and complete study was included. Initial treatment was classified as surgical, medical, or other, which included radiation therapy and laser, as well as topicals. Surgical treatment was further classified as total skinning, which included total or radical vulvectomy or panectomy, partial skinning, which included simple, partial, or hemi-vulvectomy or panectomy and wide local excision, and then Mohs micrographic surgery or unspecified. 809 records underwent full-text review and 60 articles met inclusion criteria seen in the PRISMA diagram in figure one. About 97% were case reports or Series and 3% were cohort studies. The studies were conducted across 20 states with 50% from the South, 30% from the Northeast, 13% from the Midwest, and 77% uh, from the West, depicted in Figure 2. There were 379 patients, 80% of which were female and 20% were male. The mean age for a female was 67 plus or minus 6.5 years, and for males, 71 plus or minus 8.5 years. By definition, all female patients had vulvar involvement, and among the men, 70% had scrotal involvement only, 5% had penile involvement only, and 25% had both. Table 2 illustrates initial treatment by sex. The most common initial treatment offered to both men and women were was a partial skinning procedure. of females underwent a total skinning procedure compared to zero males, and 40% of men compared to 2% of women were offered Mohs surgery, which was statistically significant. Men also had statistically higher rates of EMPD extended beyond genital skin. Partial skinning procedures were most likely to be offered in the West, Northeast, and South, and Mohs surgery was most commonly offered in the Midwest. 71% of men offered Mohs surgery were in the Midwest. When analyzed by decade, Mo's utilization was fairly consistent, around 12%, while partial skinning procedure has increased from 33 to 66%, and total skinning procedures have decreased from 54% to 13% in the 2009 to 2018 decade. About 70% of cases had recurrence data. 47% of these patients did show recurrence. 31% were male, 53% were female, which can be seen in Table 3. Total skinning had a much higher recurrence rate compared to Mohs surgery at 50% versus 16.7%. And partial skinning also had a recurrence rate of about 50%. The average follow-up time for women was 51 months compared to the 34 months for males. Medical and other treatments offered included topicals like MOD and 5-FU, along with radiation therapy, laser, PDT, or observation, but they were very low numbers. This study identified sex specific differences in initial treatment of genital EMPD in the US, with men being more likely to be offered most surgery compared to women. Women were more likely to undergo total skinning procedures despite evidence showing the associated psychologic distress and sexual dysfunction. Although this study has limitations, such as incomplete uh, state based representation and publication bias, it does suggest a treatment discrepancy between men and women with an opportunity to optimize management of this rare disease.
14: This is Yessel Kim, and I'll be reviewing an original article in March's edition of the JAD: Melanomas in Children and Adolescents: Clinical Pathologic Features and Survival Outcomes by first author Marianne L. Sharouni and senior author Carla Giels. Cutaneous melanomas are rare in children and adolescents, and there is a need for a better understanding of melanoma in this patient population. The authors sought to evaluate melanoma patients less than 20 years of age to document clinical pathologic variables, survival outcomes, and prognostic features of melanomas diagnosed in children less than or equal to 11 years of age and adolescents 12 to 20 years of age. This study included all patients less than 20 years old with invasive melanoma, excluding stage 3 and stage 4 disease between 2000 and 2014 in two large independent cancer registries from the Netherlands and Australia. Clinical and pathologic data were collected and primary and secondary outcome measures were recurrence-free survival and overall survival. A pooled cohort of 514 patients, 452 adolescents, and 62 children were analyzed. Females predominated in both children and adolescents. Median Breslow thickness was 2.7 in children and 1.0 millimeters in adolescents. Superficial spreading melanoma was the most common subtype of melanoma in both children and adolescents, followed by nodular melanomas. Follow-up data was available for 92% of patients. In total, three children and 43 adolescents developed a recurrence. Ten-year recurrence-free survival was 91.5% in children and 86.4% in adolescents. Zero children and 24 adolescents died. Ten-year overall survival was 100% in children and 92.7% in adolescents. There was no significant difference between melanoma subtypes and recurrence-free survival or overall survival. Multivariable analyses show that age, sex, mitotic index, sentinel lymph node biopsy status, and melanoma subtypes were not significantly associated with survival. Patients with melanomas on the lower limb had higher recurrence-free survival and overall survival than head and neck melanomas. Ulceration was associated with worse recurrence-free survival and overall survival. Only patients whose melanomas were greater than four millimeters in Breslow depth had worse recurrence-free survival rates than those with melanomas less than or equal to one millimeters in Breslow depth. In this study's cohorts, um, melanomas in children were much less common and all survived while survival of adolescents with melanomas was high, but some did die from their melanoma. Breslow thickness greater than four millimeters presence of ulceration, and localization on the head and neck was associated with worse survival in adolescents. The data suggests that perhaps adolescent melanomas are often similar to adult-type melanomas, while those in young children likely occur by a different mechanism. I think that a better understanding on classifying melanomas based on molecular characteristics will assist in further refining prognostic estimates and guiding treatment for patients with melanoma.
15: Hi, this is Harrison Wynn reviewing the article Treatment of Dermatofibrosarcoma Protuberans with Mohs Micrographic Surgery is Associated with Lower Odds of Postoperative Radiotherapy Compared to Wide Local Excision by First Author Bernice Yan and Senior Author Victoria Sharon. Dermatofibrosarcoma Protuberans or DFSP is a locally aggressive cutaneous sarcoma that is principally treated with Mohs micrographic surgery or wide local excision. For recurrent or persistent disease that becomes unresectable, radiation therapy or or sometimes chemotherapy is recommended. This study sought to look at whether a patient was more likely to receive radiation therapy after being treated with Mohs versus wide local excision. In this study, the the authors queried the National Cancer Database to extract clinical demographic information for DFS, DFSP cases treated between 2004 and 2017 and calculated the odds ratio of radiation therapy based on whether the patient underwent, underwent Mose versus wide-local excision. They identified 716 cases of DFSP treated with Mose, while 3,242 cases of DFSP were treated with wide-local excision. The results were as follows. The MOSE and wide local excision cohorts received post operative radiation therapy in 2.9% and 7.3% of the cases, respectively. Once again, MOSE underwent radiation in 2.9 versus wide local excision in 7.3%. Among cases with negative margins, 1.8% received radiation therapy after MOSE, compared with 5.8% after wide local excision. After statistical matching, the odds ratio for radiation therapy after Mose compared with that after wide excision was 0.51. In summary, the treatment of DFSP with Mose compared with that with wide excision was associated with nearly half the likelihood of radiation therapy. Furthermore, fewer patients received radiation therapy after negative margins with Mose versus wide excision. Overall, the study builds on the existing literature supporting the superiority of Mohs to viral excision for the treatment of DFSP. Hi, this is Harrison Nguyen discussing the article, Basal Cell Carcinoma Shows Weak Correlation with Pre-Existing Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, a Case Control Study by first author Brian Chang and senior author Bill Higgins. Increased incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL has been previously reported. Although the association of CLL with cutaneous squamous cell is well documented, association with basal cell is not as clear. In this study, the authors investigated the association between CLL and BCC using a large database called the Optum Clinformatics Data Mart Database. A total of Close to 400,000 unique patients with a surgically treated basal cell were identified. Of these patients, 0.56% had a pre-existing diagnosis of CLL. In the control group, 0.45% had a CLL diagnosis. The odds ratio of pre-existing CLL for those with a surgically treated basal cell compared to the matched population without basal cell was one25 Therefore, the study showed patients with a surgically treated basal cell only had a 1.25 times greater risk of having pre-existing C- CLL than the general population. Altogether, these data suggest the association between BCC and C- CLL is weak.
16: This is Game of Tosco and I will be discussing both parts of JAD's recent CME article entitled Risk of Melanoma and Non-Melanoma Skin Cancer with Immunosuppressants by first author Margaret Ann Kerr and senior author Rodrigo Valdez-Rodriguez from the University of Florida. The authors write an exemplary review of the immune-mediated mechanisms of skin cancer development and differing effects of immunosuppressive agents commonly used in solid organ transplant recipients. They evaluated available data on the risks of skin cancer development associated with various immunosuppressants and suggest screening recommendations based on available data. In discussing this article, I want to highlight some of my key takeaways. The quote unquote strength of each immunosuppressant is customarily associated with the risk of infection, but the relative risk of infection does not necessarily directly correspond to the relative risk of skin cancer. For example, although systemic steroids carry a greater risk of infection than cyclosporin, cyclosporin has a stronger association with skin cancer. Of the immunosuppressive drug classes, Systemic calcineurin inhibitors, including cyclosporine and tacrolimus, have the strongest reported link to skin cancer, and that link is dose-dependent. While the risk is well characterized in solid organ transplant recipients, what about when these drugs are used in patients with psoriasis? The authors cite a recent review that found the use of cyclosporine to be safe when used at dermatologic doses, specifically those outlined in the clinical practice guidelines by the AAD. The risk of skin cancer associated with combined azathioprine and prednisolone is comparable to that of cyclosporin monotherapy. Even in patients being treated for inflammatory conditions such as bullous dermatoses and connective tissue diseases, low-dose azathioprine still confers an increased risk of skin cancer. This risk is especially elevated after five years. Therefore, authors suggest routine screening for those patients receiving thiopurine therapy for any inflammatory conditions for five or more years. Many studies have shown that switching from a calcineurin inhibitor, azathioprine, or mycophenolate to an mTOR inhibitor significantly reduced the incidence of SCC, yet there is insufficient data to confirm skin cancer risk in non-transplant patients authors suspect that there would be no role for heightened skin cancer screening in these patients. Although studies have shown an increased risk of skin cancer in transplant patients taking systemic corticosteroids, it's difficult to determine the degree to which corticosteroids contribute as it is normally used in combination with other immunosuppressant medications. Other studies in non-transplant patients taking systemic corticosteroids, the risk seems to be largely related to the degree of exposure. Therefore, authors suggest heightened surveillance in patients with a history of numerous courses or extended periods. Methotrexate shows some heightened risk of skin cancer, though the heightened risk in melanoma specifically is unlikely to reach any clinical significance. Based on the evidence, authors suggest heightened surveillance in patients with prolonged courses, high cumulative doses of methotrexate, or those with other pre-existing risk factors. Cyclophosphamide has known elevated risk of non-melanoma skin cancer with no significant effect on the risk of melanoma. Thus, even when it's use is remote, patients who were on cyclophosphamide may benefit from more frequent skin cancer screenings. Studies assessing the risk of skin cancer in patients on TNF inhibitors have shown variable results, possibly because patients with rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis have a significant increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer regardless of treatment. Larger studies looking at TNF inhibitors have shown no elevated risk for melanoma. Therefore, authors suggested heightened surveillance in patients with psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and possibly IBD, regardless of type of treatment. Currently, there is no evidence to suggest patients on interleukin inhibitors are at elevated risk of overall malignancy the exception being those taking anakinra as one study looking at patients on anakinra with rheumatoid arthritis found an increased risk of melanoma compared to the general population. Overall, long-term studies on these newer biologics are still needed to determine risk and need for surveillance more definitively. Abatacept, a CTLA-4 analog, has shown significantly increased risk of melanoma compared to other biologics in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is consistent with the fact that CTLA-4 inhibitors are used to treat melanoma. Limited observational data has shown an increased risk of skin cancer in patients on natalizumab, an integrin inhibitor used in treating multiple sclerosis and Crohn's disease. Interestingly, rituximab has not been shown to be associated with an increased risk or decreased risk in skin cancer and may even be protective against malignancy. Two studies looking at the effects of alumtuzumab, a CD52 inhibitor, found no association with skin cancer, though longer-term studies are needed. Ibrutinib has shown a significant increase in skin cancer, and heightened surveillance is recommended. Lastly, no elevated risk of skin cancer was conferred in patients taking JAK inhibitors with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease, or ankylosing spondylitis. However, patients on ruxolitinib with myeloproliferative disorders had a significantly increased risk of SCC. Thus, routine screening is warranted in that population. Overall, the authors suggest regular screening in all patients with solid organ transplants, rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriasis, irrespective of immunosuppressive or treatment regimen. Screening should also take place in patients exposed to high levels of calcineurin inhibitors, thiopurines, systemic corticosteroids, cyclophosphamide or methotrexate, or any patient taking abatacept, natalizumab or brutinib.
17: This is Dr. Elizabeth Cusick presenting the original article entitled Comparative Effectiveness of Ice Packs versus Topical Lidocaine Prilocaine Mixture for Pain Control in Laser Hair Removal of the Axilla, a radar blinded randomized controlled trial by senior author Murad, Dr. Murad Ulam from the Department of Dermatology at the Feinberg School of Medicine and Northwestern University. The article begins by providing the background that laser hair removal is a common and effective modality for reduction of unwanted body hair that is generally well tolerated, but can be associated with moderate acute pain. To date, there are few studies comparing modalities for pain management during laser hair removal. The goal of the single center, tertiary center, radar-blinded randomized controlled trial was to compare the effectiveness of ice packs to topical lidocaine-prilocaine cream for pain reduction during 810 nanometer diode laser hair removal of the axilla. Participants with skin type 1 through 3 with coarse dark axillary hair were randomly assigned to receive topical anesthetic to one axilla and ice packs to the other before each of three monthly laser sessions. The primary endpoint was reported pain on the visual analog scale immediately following and five minutes after the laser session. Post-treatment erythema, edema, and perifollicular edema was assessed with two blinded photo-readers. Skin temperature, patient preferences, and adverse events were recorded. Of the 88 participants, those with lidocaine-prilocaine reported higher visual analog scales scores immediately after laser treatment with compared to the ice packs. Five minutes after, patients reported higher VAS scores with ICE. After 53 of the 88 treatments, which is a total of approximately 60 percent of the participants, there were reported preferring ICE. No serious adverse events were reported within the study. In summary, ice packs and topical lidocaine-prilocaine are not different in their ability to reduce pain associated with axillary laser hair removal and their safety profile. Ice packs may be a pain control option for patients with sensitivity to topical anesthetic preparations. Thank
1: you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash surgery To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit ASDS.net.
17: This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research letter, Drivers of Overall Mortality in Merkel Cell Carcinoma, a Population-Based Analysis, by first author, Dr. Jeremy Odkoff, and senior author Dr. Atan Holzer. This article begins by providing the background that while Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare and highly aggressive cutaneous malignancy, there is limited information on the causes of death among patients with Merkel cell carcinoma. The author's objective in this study was to delineate the causes of death associated with Merkel cell carcinoma and to further investigate the incidence of cardiovascular disease deaths among patients with Merkel cell in order to better identify those patients at greatest risk. Patients were di- that, who were diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma were identified using the Surveillance, Epidemiology and End Results Research Database from 1990, 1975 to 2016. Of the 9,375 patients identified, the median age at diagnosis was 75 to 79 years. Of the 5,818 patients who, were, who died during the median 27-month follow-up, less than half at 40.4% were attributable to Merkel cell carcinoma. Other malignancies accounted for 17.4% of deaths with hematologic malignancies, lung cancer, and melanoma being the most common cause cause of cancer diagnoses. Interestingly, cardiovascular disease accounted for 19.6% of these deaths. Those who died of cardiovascular disease were a single five-year age category older at the time of diagnosis than those who died of Merkel cell carcinoma. Male sex was associated with a 2.33% increased risk of death due to cardiovascular disease. Conversely, being married was associated with a 59% risk reduction. Overall, patients with Merkel cell carcinoma were 8.18 times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease. In summary, most patients with Merkel cell carcinoma died from non-Merkel cell carcinoma-related deaths in this prospective study, population study. Cardiovascular disease mortality occurred at a significantly greater rate than in the general population, with single men as as those at greatest risk. This observation, along with the high mortality from secondary malignancies, stresses the importance of continuing age-appropriate screening for cardiovascular disease and cancer among patients with Merkel cell carcinoma.
11: This is Ardalan Minoketid discussing the manuscript factors associated with musculoskeletal pain among hair transplant surgeons, analyses of survey data, and review of the literature. The background of this manuscript is that the prevalence of work-related musculoskeletal disorders, or WRMD, is increasing among all surgical specialties. And the authors wanted to look to see specifically within hair transplant surgeons, does this incidence or prevalence of WRMD seem to be increasing? Are there specific risk factors associated with these symptoms? and other potential mitigation measures. This was a survey study where all members of the International Society of Hair Restoration were contacted. There was approximately an 11% respondent rate. And in the results, about 78.5% of the surgeons did report experiencing pain while performing surgery. Specifically, the pain was most severe in the neck, followed by the upper and lower back, and finally the extremities. Things that were correlated with the severity included the number of grafts performed per session of follicular unit extraction. And also those aged greater than 71 years old and female surgeons did have a higher risk of pain. Specifically, the manuscript is highlighting the need for increased education and increased ergonomic measures to mitigate these WRMd.